This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast is delighted to be interviewing Erica Friedman, a historian of Yuri manga and anime, whose book, By Your Side, The First Hundred Years of Yuri Anime and Manga, is just being published by Journey Press. Erica is not simply a fan of Yuri, but is a scholar and critical writer on the topic with an academic background in library science and comparative literature. She has lectured on the topic at conventions, film festivals, and universities. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Heather. Since the listeners may have a wide range of familiarity with the genre, why don't you start with a brief definition of what Yuri is? Well, to begin with, um, Yuri, as we describe it at Yuri Khan, is any anime, manga, or other derivative media like fan fiction, film, live action that shows intense emotional connection, romantic love, or physical desire between women. Yuri is a genre not confined to the gender or sexuality or age or or of the audience, but the perception of the audience. Or as I say on my blog, Okazu, Yuri is any anime or manga with lesbian content without lesbian identity. Hmm. Okay. So what are the roots of Yuri? What sort of media did it evolve from? Who is creating it? Who is the intended audience? And how does it fit into cultural attitudes towards same-sex love in everyday life. And I suspect I have just prompted you for the entire contents of your book. This is about four hours of conversation, yes, (laughs) exactly. Um, So to begin with, uh, Yuri has uh, literary roots in girls' culture of the 1920s and 30s uh, in Japan. Girls' culture started in um, Taisho period Japan as Western influences were filling out um, the way adolescence was understood. And that is true literally like Adolescence is a 1920s construct practically everywhere in the world. So uh, at that time, um, British and French and American Russian forces uh, organizations were moved into Japan and you got same sex schools being developed and like things like the, the Young Women's Association and Young Men's Association kind of schools plus religious schools. And in that hothouse environment, in order to sort of curb Um, adolescent passion, what a lot of the school systems did was they created a culture within that school where you would admire same-sex older students. So you had the the senpai-kohai relationship became sort of the focus. In girls' school, what you would have is a sense of onesama, an older sister who would take you under their wing and, and, you know, just sort of walk you through the school and life, and you would have passionate, sometimes uh, platonic, sometimes romantic relationships during the school system. And Yuri literature began in that environment. So you had girls magazines of the 1930s, um, where women would write in stories of their those passionate relationships, letters to their own summer or their younger sisters, older sisters or younger sisters. And they would talk about how much they, they admire and love these people. And a lot of times those relationships went kept on 
into adulthood. I mean, that that's actually a thing that exists for real, where somebody who is an admired senpai um, becomes somebody that you are friends with for your whole adult life as well. And sometimes, of course, they are their ships in the night. Um, so in that environment, uh, the letters and the, the short fiction that grew up in these girls' magazines became sort of an anchor of girls' culture. Um, and it's not all meant to be specifically lesbian, much of it is not, um, but the passionate friendships are uh, a, a cornerstone of that. Into that environment was a woman called uh, Yoshia Nabuko, and she wrote a number of stories that are relatively famous in Japan in the way that like when I was growing up, everybody in my age uh, in sixth grade had read Little House on the Prairie and all the Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff was like just a cornerstone of girls American culture. They had Yoshina Boko's Hanamonogatari, which is like flower tales. And she had a story called Yana Ura no Nishojo, Two Maidens in the Attic. And that story codified so many of the tropes that Yuri is built on that I kind of identify that as like the defining first Yuri work. Um, it does things that even today we say this thing is still like a, a typical Yuri trope, like the very fact that the two maidens are in an attic room together is a, just a constantly repeated Yuri trope. Or there's a scene where there's a piano duet that is a very constant Yuri trope. Or um, there's a wonderful scene at the end of the book where Akitsu, the quote unquote older student, turns to Akiko, who is the protagonist, and says to her, come with me to the outside world. And 80 years later, in Revolutionary Girl Utena manga, uh, Anshi turns to Utena and says, come with me to the outside world. And I went, oh, that's the same scene. And I realized that what was being referenced there was a literary tradition. And so I was like, okay, if there's literary tradition here, what else am I missing? So at that time, this is back in the late 90s, I started tracing backwards and I've been writing about it and um, talking about it and, and obsessing about it ever since. And I, the more I go forward, the more I find backwards too. And it's been fascinating. Yeah, I, I find it interesting because when you're talking about, you know, the, the 1920s and the invention of adolescence and the, the, the culture of single gender schools, and, and of course, that same thing was happening in the U.S. and in Britain. Britain and France with, and everywhere else. Yeah. yeah, with like boarding school culture and, and the culture in girls' schools of crushes or smashes, mm -hmm. where it was seen as a, a valuable, a worthwhile part of your emotional development. It's safe. It's a very safe way to be emotionally developing. And having a same-sex passionate friendship was totally I mean you've talked about this a thousand times on your podcast where that is a safe way to be it's much safer than if you were to fall in love with a boy because that could cause all sorts of problems <laughs> up to the point when you know the, the times shifted slightly and suddenly these became suspect and, yes. you know, Freud and we could thank Freud for that yes yeah <laughs> yeah so the the culture the the, the homosocial culture of schools um and you've, you've already mentioned that, that, you know, this is not about lesbian identity as such. So how does it relate to current contemporary sexuality, to, to, to lesbian culture? And of course, that is the most complex question in the world, right? That is, a, that's the question. Well, and the answer is it kind of doesn't, but now it sort of is becoming. 
So when I say that beauty is lesbian content without lesbian identity, and that's because when I do reviews on my blog, if something has lesbian identity, I am a lesbian or we are a lesbian couple, that goes under the LGBTQ plus category. You know, it is the queer manga. It is, and there is a body of queer manga right now. But up until the 2000s, there was, I'm not going to say there was no queer manga, but it wasn't as much a thing. There was just, there was gay manga here in, in the West, and that really developed a real identity in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, but in in manga culture, because Yuri was this, this trope that was in all of the other demographic genres, you found kinds of Yuri in stuff for boys, for girls, for men, for women, it all looked a little different. And it wasn't until fandom really got online, and I've actually talked about this, I did a whole panel about this on Macademia this past year in 2021, um, about when fandom got online and they all went, oh, oh, okay, it's all a thing. And so fandom started going, wait a second, where are the queer characters, right? And the thing that was happening in Japan, the same thing was the, the creators that were going, well, the queer folks coming up who were also mangaka were going, where are the queer characters? Like you can have these Yuri relationships but nobody says they're gay. And of course a very popular gay trope is gay for you in the nineties and, and thousands was like, you know, I'm not gay, I'm just gay for you. And it's like, and there's, there were panels all the time and, and co conventions at the time. So what happened is as the queer audience and as the audience becomes more queer, and that is very much a real thing that I'm seeing in real time, which is fabulous, um, is demanding more genuine representation. Creators who are queer started going, well, I'm not doing Yuri manga. I'm not doing that because that's not for me. I'm doing lesbian manga or I'm doing beyond manga or I'm doing gay manga. Gay men are writing gay manga. So you have the gay creators but here's the other thing. Yuri is the only genre that's created by men, by women, for men, women, girls, boys. It's really the only genre that has no specific audience. Um, the main four demographic genres in manga are, are for boys, for girls, for men, for women. And everything is sort of assumed to be that, that audience. BL, boys love, which is gay manga. It's, it's male male relationships done by women for women is really a subset of of shoujo and jose which is by women for women yuri has roots in all all of the genres and it's the only thing that's come up that is just has no homogeneous identity so it's just yuri and yuri is as i always say for anyone who likes yuri you can find something that's for guys for women for girls for boys but it doesn't make it not Yuri. So as the queer audience, as queer creators are coming up, it's getting gayer. And it's really interesting to watch because the audience is actually demanding that and has been since the 2000s and more even 2010s, we're going, where are the gay characters in our Yuri? Where are the lesbians in the Yuri? And more and more and more, we're starting to actually see lesbian creators coming out. I did a video last year that was, are there any queer creators in Yuri? And even as I was filming that, people were coming out online. I was like, it was like, I had to add like three new people in by the end of the video and a bunch more have come out. And at the end of last year, uh, beginning of this year, there was an anthology called Boyish 2. It was a butch 
Butch, your anthology. So it was Butch X Butch. So it's not Butch Femme. Um, it's Butch Butch. And that was fabulous because it was all um, crowdfunded. And so we had people identifying as Butch lesbians doing this Butch Butch uh, uh, manga anthology for a queer audience. And so that's something that I could not have imagined 10, 20 years ago, five years ago even. It, it sounds, uh, I'm getting this impression and, and maybe maybe it it's wrong that, that what you're saying is that Yuri is like a type of content, but that it can have different flavors depending on the intended audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what would be some of the differences in those flavors? So for girls, shoujo manga will have perhaps a story of two girls in one of those hothouse environment uh, schools where, you know, everything is very sweet and gentle. And maybe at the end of the day, they say, I love you or I like you even. And maybe they kiss and maybe they just hold hands and look longingly into each other's eyes. It's all very sweet and innocent. That same story for men might be in a hothouse environment where it's the most ridiculous school you could possibly imagine. And it's absurd and everybody's so filthy and witch. And it's just this ridiculous environment and everyone's groping each other. And, you know, it's a lot of sexual behavior without maybe necessarily even saying I love you, but like just lots of um, sort of pervy behavior. And and that's not always true. I mean, I don't want to say that that's 100% true. Maybe for women, you might have a story about, um, I don't know, a ladies bar. Um, or women in the office who find themselves falling in love. There's a, a wonderful manga called If We Leave on the Spot uh, by Inui Ayu that's out by Manga Planet. It's only digital right now. Um, and it's about two women who would never in a million years have identified themselves as gay. And yet they meet in the office and they start going out and they're like, you know what? This is the real thing. We're, we're together here. And it's really lovely. It's just, But what I love about it that makes it for women is they care about their clothes and they're just adult women and they care about like, let's go to this cafe, it's cute. You know, I mean, it's it's stuff that I have conversations with with my wife about, oh, look at the style of this place. Oh, these drinks are so cute, you know, whatever. And that's what makes it for women as opposed to for anybody else. Um, stuff for boys, you might get like the cool lesbian on the motorcycle roaring in or maybe a predatory lesbian best friend or something. Each one of those tropes comes from the different things. And when you put them into Yuri, now we have Yuri magazines. When you get them there, they all have equality. So you can have all of those in one story and it's one big giant story, or you can have something completely fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, like I'm in love with the villainous where it's, um, it's taking from Isekai, which is uh, where people are sucked into games that they like or so this other world. And they have to play as a character in the game that they used to play in our world. And, uh, and that's like a completely fantasy story um, and not at all tied necessarily to any of those specific demographic genres, but it's a whole new genre of its own. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so I am pretty much an outsider to, to manga and anime culture. Uh, you know, it's like my, my passing acquaintances are when I was a kid in the 60s, I loved Kimba the White Lion, you know. <laughs> of course. Tezuka is, is, is a really major point for everybody, yeah. And uh and the one manga that I have, you know, hunted down, and you are very familiar with this because you were the editor, is Rosa Versailles. Rosa Versailles. Uh, and I, I heard about it because somebody said, oh, my God, your book, um, The Daughter Mystery, is like has the same vibe. Uh -huh. uh, so so I've got the, the first reprinted volume of that. And uh, I, I don't know when the others are going to come out. But so I'm I'm not intimately familiar with it. Uh, and 
I, because I'm involved in science fiction fandom, um, I get a lot of like awareness of the culture and the fandoms. Um, I've gotten the impression that the, in, in, let us say in U.S. fanish culture, because that's what I'm familiar with, mm-hmm. that fans of Yuri and fans of Yaoi tend to be distinct communities to some extent. Sometimes, and it's, it's always complicated because the natural tendency for Westerners, in my experience, is to have very specific layers and levels. And like one of the very first things that happened in Spanish culture was like, we have to differentiate between stuff with sex and stuff like with romance. And it's like, we're not the movie authorities and Japan is not America and we don't need to do that. Um, so there is a real tendency for the last 30 years to try to make Yahweh versus Yuri. And I always said, I don't think so. They're not opposite sides of the same coin. They're the same sides of the opposite coin. So <laughs> BL, Yahweh or BL, Boys Love, is male-male relationships done for women, by women. And so there's a lot of tropes in there that are a lot to do with sexual politics in Japan. And, and, uh, and of course, individual creator needs, which is a whole nother thing, because when you start talking about what are genres, it's like, well, then we have to cut out all these things that don't fit into that. You know, it's like, it's a whole thing. But what happened was a lot of people who like BL also like Yuri and a lot of Yuri creators started in BL or always do BL. A lot of queer creators did BL because there was a bigger market for that for a long time. And now they're moving back into Yuri. So you get a lot of in and out. So there's not clear identities in Japan, but you're right here in America, because Yaoi, because BL came here first, it has a 15 year um, 15 years of existence here in the West that Yuri didn't have. And so you had a lot of folks getting involved in the BL communities and sort of really identifying with that. And when I started writing and talking about Yuri back in the early 2000s, I'd go to events and I would literally get, you know, ooh, Yahweh. But this people were, those people, those specific people were themselves emotionally immature. They weren't really comfortable. And you could tell when you sat in a, a BL panel or a Yahweh panel and they tee at the sexuality. It's like, these are people who are not talking about this as like, oh, let's talk about how this, this part is fetishized and this part might be realistic. Or maybe, maybe these characters written more like how women would talk or maybe this is sort of an idealized masculinity. And they weren't talking like that. They're going tee glowing cones. And it took, it took like 20, 30 years for that whole community to mature. I just don't see any of that anymore. I mean, it's, I'm sure there must be people out there, but like with everything else, um, I just feel like the whole community has matured so much in BL that I really don't see a lot of that separatism that I saw initially. Yeah, and, and you know, again, you know, I'm coming at it from a different angle and a different set of experiences sure. than you, but, but what I'm getting from some of what you're saying is that, you know, the the Western attitude towards erotic content in media is coloring the reception yeah. of, of all of the, the this material yeah. in a way that is, is unnatural to the, the context in which it's being created. Yeah. And I know that, you know, as a, a writer of lesbian fiction myself, there's this, this weird, you know, two-sided sexualizing of lesbian identities in fiction. You know, on the one hand, people who, 
are, you know, maybe homophobic, it's like, oh, it's got lesbian characters. It must be all about sex. Right, right. It has to be 18 plus, right. On the other hand, you've got the, the lesbian fiction readership saying, this isn't lesbian fiction. It doesn't have enough sex in it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, right. And, and Yuri was really complicated because if it's Sailor Moon, and like Sailor Moon was a huge gateway manga. So if it's Sailor Moon, you have this is a manga for 11-year-old girls. It's an idealized princess, magical princess fantasy where the boy is the damsel in distress. And, um, and there are two characters who when they show up are so obviously an intimately involved couple who we don't say that about them. We never say that in 25 years, that has never been said. On the other hand, in 25 years, not only has our reading of them changed a lot, uh, when they were initially designed, they were designed to be seen as a Takarazuka couple. So the one character was an Otokoyaku. She was a woman who played a male role and the other one was sort of an, so she was an idealized man and the uh, other character was an idealized feminine woman. And the two of them were this perfect couple. And now we look at them, we see Haruka is sort of maybe gender fluid or gender non-binary. Um, and and um, maybe Chiru is still high femme. And either their, their relationship hasn't changed but now we're seeing like the marketing sort of acknowledging them as a romantic couple and as i understand it in the american um you know translation that, anime, yeah. that the the entire relationship as a as a relationship was initially erased initially it was it was hilariously related so this was the deke dub this is super famous back in the 90s when dragon ball z and Sailor Moon became the cornerstones of um toonami and they really broke the wall for anime and manga. I mean, like people knew about it. Like we all knew about Ranma, we knew about stuff. But man, on uh, Sailor Moon and Digital and uh, Dragon Ball Z just broke the 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 wall down. And because it was on after school on TV, where people could watch it for free. And what happened was, when the third season shows up, and when Haruka and Michiru show up, they have Amara, who is Haruka the more masculine character, uh, and Michelle are cousins. And so what happens is because you can't change the body language or the way they look at each other in the anime, they now look like incestuous cousins. There's no way to, there is literally no way to read them any other way because they couldn't change anything else. Um, now I have to say that is a very funny relic um, since then, Viz Media has put out a definitive version of the anime. And the thing I want to say about that, and it's it's available in Hulu, it's also um, the movies, and I think some of the anime are available, uh, the crystal anime are available on Netflix. But the thing I want to say about this is when Viz did the dubs this time, the people they hired to play the roles loved the series the way I love the series. They cared about the characters. And so they weren't coming in going, all right, what's this character about? They're like, I wanted to be Michiru my whole life. And I'm not joking because the woman who played Michiru was like, this is my ideal role. This is the one that got me in anime. And they play them beautifully. I'm not a dub fan usually. Not that I have anything got it. I just, I'm a purist. I like the subs. Also, um, Ogata Megumi's Haruka was the reason I just fell into anime massively. So when they do it and I'm going, yes, this is Haruka Michiru, it's, I'm not listening to an American actor reading the lines. I'm going, 
yes, this is how Haruka and Mishira would sound. This is how they sound. And it's beautifully done. And so, yes, that was the history, but Viz has really, really done the right way now. And so we have an anime that is, doesn't make us want to cry. <laughs> so, of course, my, my focus in this podcast and on my blog is uh, about historical fiction and history. Yes. Yes. Um, what can you talk about? Uh, is, is there like a genre specifically of historically set, Yuri? Well, there isn't specifically. Um, I do want to say uh, absolutely the Rose of Versailles is one of the keystone pieces in Yuri manga. And uh, we talked about that briefly. I do want to mention that you had done a, um, uh, a number 25 episode which talks about what I call the girl prince trope. And the Rose of Versailles is the thing that really elevates the girl prince trope, this, this masculine uh, presenting woman who is raised to be a man, but struggles a lot with her own identity um, and who she wants to be because she is living in the time, the years leading up to the French Revolution. And so as a noble, as a woman, as a military commander, she has all these conflicting feelings. And so if you like historical fiction, the thing about the Rose of Versailles that I absolutely think would sell it to you is that every single thing in the Rose of Versailles is historically accurate, except for the parts that aren't. <laughs> I mean, you have to keep Wikipedia open because you're like, was that real? Yeah, that was real. Like the affair of the necklace in which this random common woman wrote these stories that appeared to make, uh, to claim that uh, Marie Antoinette was having a lesbian love affair. That was actually true. And she made a lot of money. She wrote like seven books about this. Um, so that sort of thing is absolutely true. And if you didn't know that, it would come as a great shock. Um, the main character, Oscar Francois de Jarget, is not real, um, but everything that happens around her is, and right to the very end. So uh, the first five volumes of the series is out, which is the entire original series, which ran from 72 to 74, and then the 40th anniversary extra chapters. And the thing that we're missing, I'm sorry, the 10th anniversary extra chapters, we're missing one more volume, which I know will be published because I edited that as well. And that's the 40th anniversary extra chapters. And so when that comes out, it'll be a full complete set at six volumes. And okay, uh, I did not realize the additional volumes were out. I only have volume one. Clearly, I have some shopping to do. Yeah, as one through four are the original manga. So that's the original series as it came out in Japan in 1972 to 74. And I actually have one of the original magazine issues. Um, I found it in Japan and I was like, mine, this is totally mine. <laughs> like I'm totally taking this. And it's, it's the climax of the story, uh, which I will not give away. Um, although it's the French Revolution. So I'm thinking if you thought about it a little bit, you might be able to figure it out. So, um, so that one I think is your, your number one hit. Um, also in episode 120, 175, uh, Nairi Bacallian mentions a story called Yellow Rose. And I want to talk a little bit about that. In the 20s, I told you that Yoshio Nobuko wrote a series of genre-defining, generation-defining stories called Hana Monogatari Flower Tales. What those stories were was an exploration of girls' lives. And this is really unique. Um, she wrote these short stories that are just about girls in Japan. They were contemporary to her time. And as they go on, you can see how life changes. Because while they're fiction, 
they're drawing heavily on the kinds of lives that girls at that time would know, going to these schools, finding these friendships, these deep, intense friendships, and often just losing them to things like families moving or marriage or death from disease or their own struggles with uh, having to support their own families. And you can see in these stories how technology is changing really rapidly. We talk about the change of technology, the pace of changing technology now. In Taisho period, Japan, all of a sudden trains and cars and typewriters and everything was changing very rapidly. Technology is always changing rapidly in contemporary lives. And in Yellow Rose, you see something, I think, I think it's an outstanding story. Sarah Frederick did an incredible job. I, I, Sarah's a friend of mine. I think she did an absolutely outstanding job in the translation. It's a short story that talks about a woman who a few months ago was a student at a school. And now she's going back to the school as a teacher. So it's, she's year, a year or two years older than the student she's surrounded by. And there's a very brief moment of connection with a student on the train. And the train is such a metaphor as it's roaring to this new school. And you're thinking, wow, is that not the like, you know, just this metaphor of, of the future rushing, you know, at you, my God. And then they have this brief, intense moment and it sticks around and they start becoming a little closer. And when their conversations uh, happen, they're conversing about classical literature and Sappho, but also modern literature and the changing times. And, and the girl who is the teacher realizes that this may become too much. She's putting both of them in danger. So she leaves and goes to America, which is there is another trope of Yuri for years to come where you just, you leave to be freer and you go to America. And she goes to America and basically buries herself in a job. Um, and when we see her at the last, there's a desk in a basement in Colorado uh, that she's been typing on. And that's how she just buries her desire, her, her worries, her life. And the whole thing is just so much in this teeny little space. And I was so blown away by the translation. It was just so good. So that's a great one. And generally speaking, I'm a fan of contemporary fiction that becomes historical because we're looking at it 50 years later. Uh, I'm not a huge, huge fan of, uh, of historical fiction as such. Um, there's another piece that's, but this is Japanese, so I, I can't really recommend this unless people, unless people read Japanese, but there's Otome no Minato. Uh, it was by Kawabata Yasunari and Nakazato Tsuneko, who at the time was considered to be a secretary, but turns out to have done probably most of the writing. Uh, and so now they're, they're co-authors. Uh, and it's about, again, two girls at a private school uh, for girls. And again, about the changing times, but also about sort of a, a passionate triangle where it's a third year middle school student and a second, uh, second year high school student and they become Onesama and Moto. And then a first year high school student tries to break them up. And she uses technology to do that. So when they're on vacation and, and she's like, oh, let me teach you how to ride a bicycle. Let me take you to English language classes and all this cool new modern stuff. And in the end she loses <laughs> and, and the, the, the original partnership stays. And at the end, and I love this scene, this is so important. Um, they promise to continue writing and being friends forever, which is a trope that did not survive. And in a lot of the 
90s and thousands and 2000, uh, 2010s, ver particularly the boys versions of these, these girls would never see each other again. They'd be married and they'd go away and there's no technology and there's absolutely no way to communicate. And, and they would just disappear and be out of their lives. And I'm thinking, telephones exist. Do you not have telephones? Um, there's a manga that I really like in the last scene. They're literally the two characters. It's in the modern day. And two of them are holding their cell phones in their hands and going, oh, wait, we're not going to see each other for another year. We won't be able to speak. And I'm like, you're literally holding your cell phones in your hands. You're never going to speak again. What is that? So sometimes that sort of thing happens. But so I do really like um, contemporary stuff that when you look back at it, you realize that it's a, a snapshot of that time. <laughs> Okay, this is going to be the closest I'm going to come to a hardball question. Okay. You're not Japanese. I am not. Uh, you have this enormous familiarity and knowledge and, of course, love of this Japanese media, but you're inevitably coming to it as a cultural outsider. I am always, do, yes. So how do you feel that affects your relationship to the material, and how does your critical approach to it engage with that reality? That's a damn good question. Um, you're right. That's good. Hardball. Okay. So I am always upfront because I started doing, I started writing fan fiction like so many other people. And then I started writing published fiction. Um, and I mostly started writing about Yuri on my blog in review form. The way I do a review is I surface my biases always straight up front. I'm an older American, white, Jewish, Northeastern, you know, outside New York City, lesbian. And this is who I am. And this is how I read things. And you can't tell me to read things and not read them through my own lens. So when I read anything, I'm very, very upfront about this is how I'm reading. It. So for instance, when I read um, Yoshino Buko's work, and know that her life, she shared most of her life with another woman. I'm going to look at that and say, I've been to their house. I've seen the room where they used to sit and drink tea and look out on their yard. And I'm thinking, there's no way they were just buddies, you know? And you can't look at me and say, well, she didn't identify as a lesbian, so you can't say she's a lesbian. Yeah, you know what? Yes, I can. Because that's what we call that now. I could call it a Boston marriage. I could call it a passionate friendship. Or I could just say, yep. They were totally gay. And so when I surface that bias and that lens, you as a reader are free to go idiot and toss it out the window. Like, that's not it. No, they didn't mean it that way. Well, maybe they didn't. But you know what? I also feel like I can see what you maybe can't see because I do have the gaydar that you lack. Um, and I don't think that is something that I should hide. Like if, I mean, Yuri fandom is based on this character having that vibe, you know, and these two characters, I saw them looking at each other for more than two seconds in this animated film that, you know, is not real people. I mean, these things are what Yuri fandom is built on, right? This, this you know, Yuri's love of Shuri signified only by her her head in a locket that tortured her. Like, I mean, there's no way that there's, there's no lesbian relationship there, yet we all knew that was what was being said because we saw that when Shiori was looking at the guy, Jury was looking at Shiori. And so that says volumes. And I feel like, uh, yes, I'm an outsider. Of course I'm an outsider. But I don't find that to be important to the Japanese folks I know. 
um, most of them, and certainly the ones that I know in the industry and, and in the Yuri and larger anime manga worlds have been super welcoming and um, don't expect, don't, don't diss what I'm saying. They're not looking at it going, no, that's totally not there. They're going, did you notice that? And they go, oh, yeah, I totally noticed that. And they're like, okay, that's cool. Because sometimes it's put there for entertainment, not necessarily for, you know, they'll put something there and they leave it there. And if you want to see it that way, you're welcome to see it that way. And they expect that. And if you want to see it some other way, you can see it the other way. And they're trying to reach the broadest possibilities, particularly in stuff in the 2000s, where you had tons of little stuff that was seeded, but it wasn't necessarily meant to be anything. And it was like, do you want to pair that couple? You want to pair that couple? And that was to just reach the broadest possible audience. So um, my place, my place as an outsider is... Um, I don't want to say it's safe from criticism because, of course, that is utterly untrue. But generally speaking, I haven't had as much uh, backlash on that from any from any of the Japanese folks because they appreciate that the things that they put there were recognized by somebody outside that. Uh, and I feel like by surfacing my biases, it makes it easier to understand if a reader finds my work valuable. <laughs> so you have a book. I do. Tell us about your book. So my book, By Your Side, The First 100 Years of uh, Anime Manga, Yuri Anime Manga, is coming out in June. This is a collection of my writings, both critical and very not critical, on uh, Yuri from the last 20 years. Uh, it includes lectures that have never been seen outside the lecture hall. It uh, includes review pieces and overview pieces of series that are really key, like Sailor Moon, Revolution Girl Utena, um, Awai Hana, Sweet Blue Flowers, uh, Maria Samagamitru, Maria Watches Over Us. So these series, which were just keystone series in Yuri anime and manga fandom, I look at and I do as retrospectives of, I talk about the origins of the word, I talk about the origins of the audience, I talk about the literary roots, and it's very roughly chronologically organized. So I start with sort of the beginning and, you know, what is Yuri? And, and, and I have a couple of different essays about that for different locations. So some of them are very easy to read, some of them are more academic. And then I talk about early writings and I go through the early 20th century into the mid-century, late century, when Yuri fandom started growing, and then into the current time. And I also talk about the words we've used and how that's changed over time. Uh, and also I have a actual chronology of like Yuri focused events, which I wanted to put down before everybody forgot the old ones. Uh, Cause you know, fandom, fandom memory is like two years old. So I want to get all that stuff that's already now 20 years old is going to disappear. Um, so I got all of that together. And then I started writing some new content, um, particularly because as I was writing things, new tropes were popping up, uh, new series were popping up, um, whole new subgenres, literally two new subgenres popped up while I was writing the book. And I wanted to capture them. So inevitably by June, this book will already be out of date, uh, but hopefully it will give everybody language around which to do their own work. And since this has never been done before, um, and people have written, articles about Yuri, but nobody's run a whole book about it. So I'm hoping that this kind of gives a basis for Yuri research. And I'm looking forward to all the Yuri research that comes out having, you know, 
read my book and they go off and they run off and they do their own stuff on on queer media and queer transformations of of non-queer media which is actually the next thing I'm going to do and uh, I'm really looking forward to this book being out yeah fabulous uh, so we've we've gotten some recommendations from you uh, along the way of things that you particularly loved, but we, we had discussed in advance, you know, make sure you've got recommendations for people. So what are some of your favorite or the classics you think people should consume that we haven't mentioned yet? All right. So I'm just going to reiterate um, Sailor Moon, which is for little children. It's still amazing. Anyway, you should definitely watch it. Um, just get used to zooming through the transformation sequences and the attacks like really fast. You can watch all of, we have watched all of season three, the original season three in one day, having just skipped all of the openings, closings, <laughs> transformations and attacks. We got it through one day. It was like eight hours long. Um, but Sailor Moon is really great. And particularly season three, uh, which has Haruka Michiro. Um, Revolution Girl Utena, which references so many of the earlier stories uh, including a series that you can now get on DVD from Discotech, uh, Dear Brother, which is a masterwork by the same woman who did R Rose of Versailles. It's called uh, Onisama E, Dear Brother. The manga has never been translated to English, but the anime is a masterwork. It is incredibly emotionally intense. And it's just about a girl in a uh, high school where the politics are unbelievable and it's just it's done by um, a master director Dezaki Osamu and it's absolutely fantastic so that's really good um, and obviously the Rose of Versailles anything by Ikeda is always good Ryoko Ikeda. Maria Watches Over Us is a anime that has four seasons it's out in English um, and it's I particularly like it because it it's a modern 21st century version of the old early girls culture s tropes so it's modern it's funny as hell um but there's there's some really intense stuff and there's some actually there's one actual lesbian character and one of her her story is told in one of the novels but also in one of the anime scenes uh series really good stuff um if you want fantasy, if you want a different look at magical girls, you can look for uh, Puella Magi Madoka Magica, which is a really dark sort of magical girls story. Um, and then the thing that I'm reading right now and obsessing right now is not an anime, it's a light novel, which is an illustrated novel series. And then it's also a manga, uh, which is coming out in English, both of them out from a company called Seven Seas. And it's called I'm in Love with the Villainous. And it is an isekai in which a character an adult character from our world perhaps overworked um, may have died and wakes up one day suddenly in the world of her favorite rpg or her otome game it's a it's a dating sim game where in the original game as a protagonist you're supposed to go for the princes but she fell in love with the villainous and so now she's after the villainous it's five light novels, four of them are out in english the fifth one is coming in july i can't wait for the fifth one to come out because people's heads are going to go I've read all of them. Um, and then there's an, another series from the villainous's point of view, which is also really fantastic. And it's out as a manga. And I would highly, highly recommend that for queer readers because it has openly queer identity and discussions. In book one, as you're sitting there, one of the characters is so to the main protagonist. So are, are you one of those people they call homosexual? And I was like, are we actually having this conversation? Yes, yes, they are having this conversation. And that's in book one. 
and it doesn't get less queer. It actually gets more queer and we get more real world identity. What it doesn't do is create a world in which queerness is fully accepted in the country we started and it's not in another country it is, but it uses those spaces to make critical commentary about contemporary Japanese life. And I think that was what that point was. And so that's really good. And I highly recommend that one. So since we're talking about isekai, I want to talk about a couple more titles that these are again, light novels, which means they are novels, generally, generally speaking for young people. So they're written very easily, you know, not complicated fiction. Um, they have illustrations and they're very fast reads, but I want to talk about a couple more that might be interesting. Um, there's I'm in love with the villainous. There's also something called sexiled. My sexist party leader kicked me out. So I teamed up with a mythical sorceress. And that one takes the real world scandal of women having their scores downgraded by the Tokyo Medical Universities so that more men got in. Uh, that actually really happened in Japan. And when it found out, obviously it was a huge scandal. And so it takes that idea and puts it into another world in a fantasy world, sort of an RPG D&D type game where the main character is the greatest powerful mage, but because she's a woman, she has to wear sexist clothing and is not allowed to be a mage or a knight or any of the things that she's good at. And everyone treats her really crappy. And so she and this mythical sorceress team up and they change the world together. So it's a really good feminist power fantasy because no one gets hurt. It's really, it shows the power of ridicule over violence. Mm. Really good series. And also really hard to read, but really excellently written. J.K. Haru is a sex worker in another world, which is exactly what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, also, there's some uh, some interesting historical stuff for fans of, of uh, Western comics. I want to mention two books that I think are really, really worth your time. Uh, the first one is Resistance, the LGBT fight against fascism in World War II by Avery Castle and edited by Diane Kensler. And has it's not a comic, it's actually essays about fighters against fascism in World War II. And Diego Gomez does illustrations. And that's really a nice book for we don't tend to think of comics necessarily historical, uh, but obviously World War II is should be very much on our minds right now. And uh, and we can see how queer people were, were actually up front in the fight. And the other comic I want to mention is No Straight Lines, which is four decades of Western queer comics. It's edited by my buddy, Justin Hall. And it has, from the origin of the gay comics scene in the late 60s, early 70s, through the AIDS crisis um, and into the modern age, uh, dykes to watch out for and that sort of stuff. But it's it is very historical and you don't, again, people don't think about that, but I'm looking back at these comics of the, the AIDS crisis thinking, you know, I, I certainly was aware of all of that and I was younger and I was old enough to know about it, but I was living a bit of a sort of suburban lifestyle and didn't really, wasn't involved with these people were in the middle of this. And you want to talk about contemporary fiction that really, you know, we don't see a lot of lesbian contemporary fiction in the AIDS crisis, but we're starting to see some of that more. And that was really a, a major historical turning point. Um, and also Don't Ask, Don't Tell and some other stuff. So there's, that's really good. I would highly, highly recommend those. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, we will be listing a lot of this information in the show notes. And you're going to supply me with notes because I can't necessarily follow all of those Japanese names. No, I will absolutely give you all the notes and I'll give you links to where you can find them and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah that would be lovely, um, especially for, for manga. You know, if, if my listeners have, if you have a local comic and graphic novel store, uh, by all means, you know, Yes. Try to support them by by ordering this stuff. And if you don't, you can go to comicshoplocator.org and they'll help you out to see where the, your local shop is. So if people wanted to learn more about your work or follow you on social media, where should they go? I know you have a website, yurikon.com. Yes. Any other places? Yeah, yurikon.com, you can find all the essays that I and other people have written. So if you are interested in Yuri research or um, analysis, I recommend going to the essays page there and starting there, seeing what's out there and then going ahead and running with it. Um, if you want to read my reviews, my essays, uh, my, my retrospectives of anime and manga, go to okazu, O-K-A-Z-U dot That's my blog. I've been doing that for about 20 years. If you just want to hear me blather about stuff, you can go hit me up on Twitter. Um, I don't, Okazu Yuri there. And of course I have a, a Patreon, uh, Okazu, and uh, also Pixiv Fanbox, Okazu Yuri. And uh, I think that's pretty much where you can find me. And that's basically, I'm out everywhere. I'm on Facebook as well, but uh, the Facebook group pretty much has the same content and it's a slightly different community where people can talk a little differently, but oh, we have a Discord as well. So uh, you can find me just about anywhere and we'll be always talking about random eerie stuff, plus also food. <laughs> well, we'll put links to all of those in the show notes, along with, as I say, links to many, many of the things you've mentioned. Thank you so much for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And this was so fun. And I'm just enjoying your podcast so much. So I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 